over 60% of first home buyers are hitting up the bank of mum and dad. And with the average help from mum and dad being around about $90,000, on this week's episode of the Wealth Collective Podcast, we thought we'd discuss the best ways to go about helping your kids with a first home deposit. Enjoy. Everything we talk about on today's podcast is general advice only because we don't know your individual personal situation. Before you act on anything we've spoken about, you should chat to your financial advisor. And if you don't have one, feel free to reach out to us. Now, on to today's show. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Wealth Collective Podcast. I'm Zach Masters, and today I'm joined by Pete Pennycott from Picada and Anthony Malvazo from AGM Advisory Group. How are we going, gents? Uh, feeling good. Uh, it's uh, a bit weird. We had like a public holiday, but no public holiday on the Monday in, uh, in right. Melbourne. So, heard you two were playing two up in the city. Playing, we we're mastering two up. <laughs> <laughs> Did it end up up, or yeah. what happened? No, I definitely. It was more like the Batuta article where I think uh, it got a bit. The uh, the old uh, bet size increased on the way out when we sort of thought we as had the, the game the nailed. <laughs> so, uh, it was all in, all in good fun. It was the first time I played it, so uh, it was pretty good. Anthony was a, a bit of a hot streak for a while, so uh, it was good good laugh, uh, good sense Ooh. of community there, and good to see sort of uh, you know people out celebrating uh, on the day, which was really nice. Paying their respects. Busy out and about. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it was on Sunday. And, uh, yeah, we went to Younger Jackson's in the city. And, uh, yeah, the old two-up, it was great fun. The uh, the run was with $5 notes. So once he started getting up to 20 30 and then Pete on the way out dropped the 50 and <laughs> we're back to even. Definitely not a sound investment about, like, strategy. Tw- yeah, we were there for about 20 minutes, odd, and pretty much it like, goes – the, the rounds last, like, 40 seconds so it is good fun and yeah as Pete said it was good to see there's a lot of a uh, lot of the veterans out and uh, yeah it's definitely a good day in Melbourne to be back yeah, out there. It was good and a lot of RSLs I think sensibly had their um, yeah their service a little bit later in the morning so it was, um, it was good that I didn't have to sort of uh, actually wake up at the crack of dawn uh, so very very good so I like that idea so please do more of that in the future Ooh. the uh, people who are organizing RSL events Ooh. Uh, very good, very good. So what we're going to talk about um, this week, that's not really a segue, but um, what we're going to talk about is the, the bank of mum and dad. So the digital finance analytics um, put out their latest figures, um, and that's that more than 60% of first home buyers are now receiving help from their parents. Uh, this is up quite a significant amount. I think it was around 9% during COVID. Um, so obviously... Uh, a lot more home buyers are now looking to get back into the market. The market's been quite strong of recent times, and that average gifting is now equating to approximately ninety thousand um, dollars, which is a, is a significant amount, um, especially considering the average deposits sitting at around about one hundred six thousand for first home buyers, um, which means the bank of mum and dad's providing an average of eighty four percent of the total required deposit um, for more than sixty percent of homeowners, um, and that's quite a significant amount. So what we're going to talk about. Um, is how the, the bank of mum and dad go about funding these deposits. Where do they come from? Um, what type of strategies should they be thinking about? Um, but what I might start off with, Anthony, is I guess the question with why are more young Australians needing the bank of mum and dad to help purchase their first home? 
Well, the easy answer is property prices. I might leave that for you guys to go into more depth. But the first thing that comes to mind from from myself and when I speak to younger 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 Australians who are looking to get into the property market, it's not planned out well enough where they may have unrealistic expectations. They may be living within a 10-kilometre 10, 10 radius from the city or their, their workspace. And they're not they're not looking at options to go say thirty kilometres out, where the prices are obviously a lot lower, um, and that's where um, they'll need to be if they're not set up without going towards uh, the the bank of mum and dad. I'd say if if you know a young couple or a young person's renting close to the city, it's, you know South Yarra, Essen, depends on which side. Chances are, unless you've uh, really, you know, saved that deposit and for, for since you started working, you're going to have to really look at options out, outside of that area, looking at really going 25 to 30 k's out and building that asset base. I'd say that's one of the biggest, biggest, uh, biggest problems I see when I hear young people wanting to head into the market. They want to go, you know, uh, for, they, you know, if they're in Ascot Vale, they want to go just, uh, you know, a suburb or two out um, because it suits the lifestyle. They like the suburb, obviously. It's just not feasible unless they've um, obviously got that help or they've really planned it out well and they've got they're in a position to purchase. Yeah, and I think that's that's good points. And I think, uh, like for me, it comes back to the lack of financial awareness at schools or the lack of financial mm-hmm. education as well, like um, setting people up for savings plans, like even for a lot of young Australians understanding that you need like usually need around 20% deposit to avoid lenders mortgage insurance, Mm. things like that are not really taught at school at all. Um, So then people don't start to save early. Um, But what about you, Pete? So you're probably the one you've got young kids at the moment. Is this something that's on your radar? Um, how old do you think my kids are? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I mean. Like how, like do you start saving for it now? Like you've got uh, was it a three-year-old and one-year-old. Um, like how, gonna, how are you going to bring them in here and ask them? <laughs> what do you mean? What would I be saving for their house? So um, what, yeah, no, probably I, what Pete? What would, what would you what would you say if you're wait you know fifteen you know fifteen twenty years time if this question did come up? Which you know as as the figures say, there's a strong chance that it may. But obviously, I'd, I'd imagine you would put, uh, you do, would teach, you know, bring up the financial training with your kids. But if that question did come up, how would you approach that? Uh, well, I guess I'd, I'd imagine the question wouldn't come up because I would have um, instilled in them the uh, regular savings plan habits from a very young age, and I'd have a, uh, they'd be well established. So, I think like property prices are one problem. Like I think as a quantum of, um, yeah, the average income. It's it's continued to stretch out and stretch out. So that means it's it's harder to afford it. Um, but in saying that, there's a like there's demand driving that. So it's not like these it's not robots purchasing these properties. It's people uh, going out and doing it. And it's sort of fed by this. It's going well. I think there's a. I think there is a shift towards people want better sooner. And I think sort of you know following on with what you were saying before is that. I don't know. I think in the past, maybe people were prepared to um, be a bit more conservative with how much they borrowed as a sort of relative to their income. And sort the of looking was, at what's the max they can get. Yeah, instead of going, what what can I borrow? And should, like, what should I borrow? Uh, yeah. I think, yeah, it's a subtle difference, but quite uh, profound in terms of the difference in terms of how quick you pay it off. Um, and there, there's been a variety of factors that have fed that of, We've seen like the greatest 
few decades of property price appreciation um, in capital cities, uh, especially in Melbourne and Sydney, where, all right, well, it makes sense. We should gear, gear up because property prices keep going up. So why wouldn't you borrow more? And it's just a land grab because the return on equity is going to be higher the more you borrow. Um, but that's a dangerous game because it might not always be the case. Um, so I think, I don't know, like the, the um, valuing how much equity you have in property or how much equity you start with and actually trying to own your home, um, that doesn't seem to be as high a priority. I think people are more looking at it and comparing it to renting and because interest rates are so low, saying, well, okay, well, I was paying this in rent. I can pay that on my mortgage and sort of just go at a 30-year loan um, right, and just pay the minimum repayments. Um, and you even saw how many people were on interest only previously as well. So, um, yeah, look, it's, there's a host of factors uh, involved in it. But I think, you know, getting outside support to sort of get in there, it's just sort of uh, propping up. And there's like a lot of government stimulus packages, you know, deliberately targeted at the property uh, market because it's good for, good, for, good for growth, good for jobs, um, which is the catch cry pre-COVID of what the what we're going to bring and growth, um, jobs and growth. <laughs> so yeah that, i know that's how i'm sort of picturing and i go like just going back to my kids like they're really young so like remy's three years old so i'm not really thinking about what property he's going to have um if i survive that long with all the sort of uh, lack of rest that i've got um that'd probably be an, an effort so who knows you might be looking at inheritance early so. <laughs> life insurance in terms of this, so like, I know this is something that, um, Pete, you and I have seen quite a lot recently with clients coming through. Like a lot of the time when you're speaking to clients, like a lot of in their goals, it's I would like to help my kids with their first property or a property deposit. We had one the other week, Pete, that came in and I was saying, yeah, we want to help um, our daughter get into a property. Like what should people be thinking about when helping their kids with a deposit? Uh, like I guess it's trying to ensure it's appropriate um and is it just like i don't know whether it should just be a deposit um i don't know left to center thinking it's you know well first it's like where does the money come from how much do you give how's that impacting i think they're all important factors there's other ways to help your kids into the property market um i don't know i know this is not on the show notes or sort of a tangent going off here but you guys can sort of answer this question a little bit better um maybe you should be helping them buy the right property yeah, because yeah, you want to you want that to grow in value. You want them to see it through the lens of someone with a little bit more expertise. So give them introductions to good specialists, good professionals, and maybe pay for those services for them. Because I think they're going to buy better. They're going to get more bang for their buck. And then whatever deposit you give them goes a bit further. So I mean, like get a property advocate to go help them go find a property that's suitable for them in a good suburb that's got really good capital growth mm. prospects get them in front of a good mortgage broker who's going to get them a really good deal and structure their loan correctly. Um, all these things make your money go further and your kids better off. And that's a win because if you're happy having to help them out with a deposit, fair to say, the better off you make them in the longer term and then even in the short to medium term, that's a win because you're probably not going to have to duck in, you know, dive into your pockets again. Yeah, uh, if yeah. you can get this right and you can teach them some really valuable lessons that can carry forward. So that's how I would help them with a inner inverted commas deposit. What about you, Anthony? How would, what do you think they should be thinking about? Uh, I might go and take the other approach. Will I, will I get it back? That's uh, something that should be considered because I saw this a lot of my time in the bank where 
there was money put in an offset account and that was spent on on whole uh, remember one uh one uh group of clients they the father or the parents helped them out and there was a, a set amount put in an offset account that offset account was being used for a trip for travel um so the, the uh daughter who was getting the house purchased or the, or the went to the bank of mum and dad she was already planning other things so i think uh there was a saying a few years ago that i heard that around the people in their 50s were a sandwich generation where a lot of time though i had to help people on both uh, the family on both sides the kids and the parents so and that's a time where you really need to be focusing on your retirement plans you, you know most of the time you're 10 15 years out so really need to have your plans in place but the but I suppose when getting back to that will I get it back will it how much will it disrupt your 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 financial plan such as you know retirement planning so to make sure one how it's how it's going to come back and you know is it going to affect too many things of your own so that's um some, some of the um others other factors you should be thinking about yeah and I think that feeds into probably why um the amount of people helping their kids is so much higher now as it was during COVID. So a lot of people were probably not willing to sell growth assets and things like that. Well, the market was down and you're nervous. And now if the people are feeling better, um, your investments have probably recovered a bit and they're going, oh, lucky I can help now. So that probably feeds into that, making sure that you're all right first before you just willy-nilly go and start gifting money off as a deposit as well. Well, it's um, a bit of FOMO as well. If you, I don't know if you ever watch or sort of tune into any news. It's like everything, like property markets going, growing at record rates, auction clearance rates. Um, yeah, all stats, you know, data can be split a million ways. So I don't know, just, I don't know. There's this thing feeding this beast of you need to be, you know, owning property and as soon as possible because you're going to miss out. Um, yeah. And I think you need to look at too, like where do you take, the assets from so if you are at a stage where you can access super like have you got cash outside of super like where are you gifting this deposit from um that can play a big part in your overall financial goals as well it's not as easy as going i'll just take it from here and put it there mm. like if you need to probably be having to think about what are the consequences of taking it from super can i get the funds back in um if i do that uh, is it best taking it from my cash account all those different types of things like you should be thinking about uh, before you potentially go and, and gift it um, what would you say for someone that can access so access their super or they've got investments outside, where should they be taking the money from? Yeah, well, ideally, you'd want to still be keeping as much money in super as you can. So super's likely, likely going to be the most tax-effective vehicle for you in retirement. The hard thing is potentially you can't get those funds back in once they go out. So depending on what your um, transfer balance cap is and like all those, uh, you know, what age you are in terms of getting contributions into super, um, all those types of things you need to weigh up um, because it might be a case that you take money out and you can't get it back in. And we want to be trying to keep as much money in that environment as possible. So yeah, usually from outside of super um, tends to work best, but obviously it's case by case scenario. But that's usually the way which we'd look at it. Um, yeah. In terms of strategies that can be used to maximize the gift, have you got any ideas about ones people can use, Anthony, for this? Yeah, I mean, we mentioned accessing from superannuation. That depends on the age. But uh, one strategy is, you know, to have the parents come in as a, as a co-title owner, like they're basically lending the money and it's sort of investing themselves into the property. That way, uh, if the kids want to, down the track, want to have the title as their, as their sole as, on their own, they'll be more in tune to 
to pay that money back. I think um, my, my thought process is I've seen situations where it doesn't work out well for the parents. So I'm always thinking, you know, is there is there a path back where the funds come back to the parents, not just to get the kids into the property market? But if, if the parent could come in and they purchase the, uh, the property together, they will obviously not be just gifting the money. They'll be investing the money. So they'll be placing the money into an asset that will most probably grow and then, you know, it depends on what the setup is, maybe a little bit of rent coming back. And then at the end, it can be sold at an agreed price. So that's one, one, sort, of, one sort of strategy you could go down where the parent comes in as a co-owner rather than just gifting the money. It just it keeps, it keeps the parent's money in, a, in, a, in an asset and it's not just gifting the money. And it also, there's a bit of assurance that, you know, they've got a bit more stake in the, in the venture. What about you, Pete? What strategies do you think people should be looking at? Well, it really depends on uh, who they are and what their personal circumstances are. But I think to make, I don't know, probably I'd like to approach this from the certainty perspective. So we've got a lot of clients that actually gift uh, cash to their children. Their concern really is what if there's a relationship breakdown? It might not even be a current spouse. Um, so sort of what are the risks for their child? So, you know, sometimes... Um, when you're helping out someone like they're in that mode of, I want to, you know, this is an exciting time. I want to buy something sort of rose colored glasses, you know, the air's fresher, water tastes better. And Melbourne does have really good water, but um, <laughs> then probably going to be a little bit blindsided to these, you know, the dot your eyes and cross your T's. So I'd be looking at going, you get a formal loan agreement drawn up by a solicitor, get that, you know, get your kids to get independent legal advice. So make sure it's bona fide. Um, you know, if it's a significant gift, you might want to take part security over the property as well. Um, cause that's going to be the thing of going, um, you know, are you okay with your gift being halved or sort of carved off to an ex-spouse at some point in the future? Um, so what is the intent? Is, are you ever expecting it to be returned or does that change if there's a relationship breakdown and someone's trying to cut the, the house in half? Um, I think that would be, uh, an important thing to do. I think the other, uh, Part of it is, um, you know, can you, can you do it with enough lead time? Which I think this is another inherent problem with a lot of the property transactions that I see from uh, the first home buyer generation. What, and they can be a variety of age, ages. So, um, but typically it'll be 20, 20s and 30s in this zone. It, it has to happen really quickly. So it's like, whoa, okay, we want a house. When? Okay, great. How much? How many years? Like, what investment strategies have you got for me for, for the money? All right, when do you want to buy? Well, in spring. Okay. Um, well, we're going to be kind of limited here uh, in terms of investment strategies. I know you're going to talk to some of the super strategies in a second. So that would be the thing of going, can you, I guess, get a sense for, is this really urgent? Or can this be deferred and sort of trying to build up the assets and buy really well? Um, and then maybe if you, you know, if you can provide your kids rent-free accommodation up until this point, you know, and then in, get that get those funds saving because every dollar saved is a dollar you don't have to borrow and fund the bank's profits, um, which is really important as well. So you don't want to defer forever because obviously we've seen, you know, it's a capital growth asset, so it's likely to increase. But um, yeah, that that's how I would probably uh, sort of take that approach but you've got some super strategies one of your favorites yeah first time super saver scheme so one of my favorites um a lot of people still don't seem to know that this even exists so even when i talk to 
a lot of people my age, they got no idea about it. Um, yeah, majority of people I'd say don't know about it. So what this is, is pretty much you make uh, voluntary concessional, so pre-tax um, or, or non-concessional contributions into super to help save for your first home. Um, so what we need to look at is the maximum contributions you can put in are 15,000 per year. So $30,000 in total. Um, and if your child's part of a um, couple, like that's each, um, that you can do that. So what that is, is you're essentially, if you're putting that in as a um, concessional contribution, so pre-tax, um, your child's going to be saving tax, but also that money whilst it's in super is has a deeming rate of the, it's at the high 4% mark. So a lot better than what you're going to be getting in any bank account. Um, and then all you need to do is once you go to purchase that property or you've got the property ready to go, you sign the form saying that that was a first home super saver contribution and you take the funds back out plus what they've earned with interest. So this is almost a no-brainer. The only real risks associated with this is that you chuck the funds in, they're in the super environment. So if you don't go and buy a property, like there's potentially they're stuck in there, um, you can look to get them out and pay tax consequences, but that gets quite um, messy. Um, but, so th but this is if you are definitely going to be buying a house and it's you know within the future, um, or even if it's going to be soon, you could chuck the money in as a contribution, get the tax saving, pull it back out, the next day essentially um, save that X amount in tax um, when the tax return comes around. Um, and that's, that's a, that's a, you end up getting, you know, a fair bit back depending on what their marginal tax rate is um, obviously. So that's one I think that people should be looking at a lot more. Um, is this one that you're seeing with your clients, Pete? Um, yeah, I've, had a few, a bit? I've had a few that's actually used it. So it's been good to see it in, <coughs> not just in theory, actually, you know, and actually it works, you know, and the money comes out pretty, pretty swiftly as long as you're prepared and uh, thankfully my clients have been quite diligent with their approach so yeah super funds have been really good at handling it um, so definitely something to have a look at so lift up the hood do the numbers make sure it's appropriate for you um, the other one like make sure like yeah you're putting something like, get in touch with a professional or be really good at using the internet so make sure you know like all the government um, and that's federal government and state government incentives that are available you know because that might uh, yeah, be a little bit of a bonus to sort of, you know, get you into the property a little bit sooner. Um, I think the asterisks and the buyer beware thing I'd say is everyone's getting these incentives and what it does, it creates price pressure around certain levels because everyone tends to sort of shop right up until that top limit. Mm -hmm. So if it's a $500,000 limit or it's 800000 guess what? <laughs> the, um, the competition around that spot is really high. So what it can do is... Mm -hmm. You know, potentially lead you to buy the wrong property um, or for the mm. wrong price. Um, so I think that's important to not get caught up in that hype uh, cycle or don't be so swayed by them. Be aware of them because, you know, if you can get the right property and it fits and it's a little bit of an extra kicker, that's mm. great. Um, but just be aware they do heavily skew towards um, new builds, which mm. potentially, mm. like historically speaking, um, don't offer as much capital growth prospects. Uh, so you might want to just be careful there and you've got to look behind what's the motive of the government in incentivizing new builds. What is it? It's jobs and growth. Jobs and growth. Jobs and growth. <laughs> so, um, so it's not really like there's more jobs, more growth created by building activity than there is with an established home. Um, so yeah, have a look at that. Um, yeah, really important. So um, because yeah, if you're eligible, uh, you should be. And I think if you speak to a really good mortgage broker or a property advocate, mm. they're going to steer in the right direction and make sure you don't leave anything on the table. 
Definitely. Um, before we wrap up today's episode, is there anything else you think we've missed, gentlemen? Yeah, any extra just, points? Just like, last thing I'd say is uh, it's always good to have a third party, whether that's a trusted advisor or another family member. Has uh, again, looking at this, things can go wrong. You want someone else there that hey, this this was all agreed, and someone else that can you know sort of eyeball everyone, whether it's a trusted advisor or another family member, just to make sure that everyone's on the same page. Yeah, and I think I'd just second Pete's point about the legal advice. So binding financial agreements. Mm. Um, if you're gifting to your children, and they're in a relationship. Um, yeah, once mm. they move in together, it's likely they're de facto then. And um, if they do split up, you've got to think about what happens to your gift in that circumstance. So getting mm. independent legal advice and making sure um, that you're not then having to fork out more money further down the track for another deposit um, and oh. things like that, I think is pretty important. Anything else you'd add, Pete? Oh, plenty. This one we've gone for ages. I think um, <laughs> some other ones that we've not really discussed is, if we're like, I don't know who's listening here. If, the, if someone's listening and they're a very generous parent or just a very caring parent, um, if the kids don't have income protection, fund that for them because if they get ill, get injured, get sick, can't pay their mortgage. Guess who's paying it? <laughs> yeah. So I'd say that's a really good investment. Yeah, to help like instill them and understand this is important. Is your is your cash flow required to service this debt that we're about to put you in? Yes. Okay. Great. We need to protect it because your plan B needs to be uh, somewhat rock solid. Um, yeah, and you're just giving them the cash to fund it. You wouldn't pay for it for them because that has some tax implications. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's a good thing to instill in them. Um, and I think the other one is. If you are planning ahead, and so let's say we've got some early 20-year-olds or sort of late teenagers listening here, yeah, with a decade-long plan and say, yeah, I want to buy sort of in my late 20s or early 30s, get saving um, and save into growth assets. You've got a decent time horizon. Let your money compound because that will do part of the heavy lifting. So you're not having to, you know, if it's a $200,000 deposit you need, you don't have to save every dollar of that $200,000. Let's let the money do some work for you as well. Uh, and if you know it's going to be more than 10 years away, so you might be 18, well, you know, think about structures like an investment bond. Um, or if it's parents out there, do you start to get your kids saving into a discretionary family trust? Because you know, if you're at a higher marginal tax rate, it might be good to send them to distribution depending on what their earnings are at the time. So you've got some flexibility on how you manage your tax and make that money go a bit further. Um, and if, you know, if it's parents with children that are similar to my age, you know, do, yeah, if you've got the capacity and you think you're going to want to help them with whatever it might be, you know, get started in a regular savings plan. Just put money every month, rain, hail or shine, doesn't matter how much it is, just do it and get it into growth assets. And again, just let the magic of compound interest do its thing. And if you want to give it time for a deposit, Awesome. If it's something else, if it's a musical instrument, if it's a horse, a ute, if it's a overseas trip to blow off some steam, whatever. Um, but we're on property today, so it'll be a property deposit, obviously. <laughs> um, and then you can have a think about the structure. Yeah, discretionary trusts, investment bonds, you know, um, you know, something owned in trust for the kids. But you get, you know, don't give up complete control too early. Uh, I want to make sure that money's secure and your children's uh, financial uh, future is secure as well. So, um, everything we talk about, the earlier you start planning, the easier it makes it. Oh, absolutely. And this is 100%, 100%. case in point. Yeah, you, yeah, 
I haven't run the numbers, but it'd be absolutely gobsmacking the difference of doing it over the course of 20 years or 30 years. You know, a lot of people are buying in their sort of late 20s to 30s, like compared to if you had to do it over five years. So, um, yeah, pretty remarkable. Like, but um, a lot of good stuff in there. So, um, just in time for the, um, you know, people to go out shopping on the weekend and uh, find the home That's of their it. dreams. Happy buying. <laughs> oh, well, it, is, it is really good. It's important because um, yeah. Yeah, it's a really, really good asset to have. Like it's a CGT-free asset. So, um, and, you know, parting remarks. Again, this could be a parting remarks for the next half hour. But, um, yeah, don't think your first home is your forever home. Yeah, so look at it through mm. the lens. It's hopefully a stepping stone. It's a future investment property. Look at it with that lens, and I think you will do really well for yourself. Yep. Very good. Very good tips. So, as always, if you've got any questions, email us at connectorpicata.com.au. Send us through um, any future topics that you'd like us to cover. Uh, otherwise, we'll see you next week. Yeah, Thanks, well, gents. the mailbag. The mailbags run dry. Thanks. Come on. I know, the mailbag's dry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, gents. See ya. Thanks, guys. See ya.